Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Clint Jones. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Brian Skersha. And today, we're talking about Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Developed and published by Nintendo, the game was released for the Switch on May 12th, 2023. And we'll be talking spoilers, so just a heads up if you're sensitive to that. So guys, why are we playing this game? I thought I told you I did not like Breath of the Wild. <laughs> well, luckily, me and Brian liked it enough to demand that you play this one, too. Because me and Brian were both big fans, though I know from our previous podcast, you were less so. Yeah, we, That's all right. we liked it enough that we turned it into an adjective in recent podcasts. You know, uh, Batwaism or Breath of the Wildism <laughs> has become a bit of a, uh, a thing around here. And, you know, this is a very influential gamer, rather, uh, Breath of the Wild was. And I think Tears of the Kingdom built on it in some very interesting ways. You know, I agree, and I'm glad we played it because, uh, spoiler alert, I liked it this time, guys. Whoa. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. This isn't going to be uh, yeah, us butting heads. Uh, it'll be just three guys agreeing again. Uh, maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like I had to get it out there early so the angry people next to their keyboards didn't start clacking away immediately. Like, <laughs> it's okay, guys. <laughs> it definitely shows, I think, that this game had a lot of good ideas to, to share. You know, to, spent six years in, in development, but... A lot of folks were coming out saying like, oh, it's just a reskinned Breath of the Wild or, oh, it's just an expansion pack for Breath of the Wild. I think we can put that solidly to bed. 100%. Yeah, super impressed with the game. Just the places it went and the ideas it brought in. Uh, very impressed with it. An interview I read said that the guiding principles of this game were creativity, exploration, and narrative. But to my mind, the thing that sets it apart from Breath of the Wild is invention. It keeps that exploration discovery idea, but there is like a difference in this one where they have this gigantic building mechanic that I'm sure we're going to talk about way more at length, but um, just fascinating changes that they decided to iterate on with this one. Yeah, it wasn't even just that. They added, I mean, people were like, oh, it's the same map again. Well, yeah, but they also added a, a sky area and I think even more importantly, the depths, which I think added a complete new area of the game and a whole new feel of the game too like that felt way different than anything going on on the surface even the surface which was the geometry the um or geography i guess you could call it this scale the geography of the original hyrule from breath of the wild um it felt like you were exploring it again the different ways they introduced into the game of getting around and the different things you could find uh the game felt a lot more filled up than pre the breath of the wild did um it felt like you were exploring it all over again even though like i knew what was in the jungle and i knew what was in the desert and up the mountains and things like that well i think you knew you knew where the jungle was you didn't know what was going to be there is i think the interesting <laughs> part because and maybe it's worth just setting this up off the top so that we have some context for this one um, this is post-Breath of the Wild Hyrule. Same Hyrule, same Link, same Zelda, most of the same characters uh, from the original game, but occurring after Zelda and Link investigate uh, the, the gloom, a.k.a. the rot under the house in Hyrule Castle, um, <laughs> and uh, finding a dehydrated Ganon uh, after <laughs> learning of the imprisoning war. Uh, beef jerky, beef jerky Ganon. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yes, they find beef jerky Ganon, and uh, he he hurts Link's arm to the point where he passes out for several years and loses his arm, but then wakes up, and uh, the Master Sword's broken, Zelda is lost, and he wakes up to a Hyrule that is completely changed. 
there's an upkeep. Now, hang on a second. I didn't think this was years after. It felt to me like days or weeks. Like, people are like, oh, Zelda, or, oh, Link, there you are. Uh, (laughs) Where were you? Where have you been? You've been missing for a bit. I gotta say, just off the top, like, the difference between Breath of the Wild, just... And uh, Tears of the Kingdom just starts here. Like, there was no setup in Breath of the Wild. They're like, here's this giant empty space. Go do something. Here's a ghost that says, go collect some stuff and get a glider. And I'm like, okay, that's not interesting. Beef Jerky Ganon, though, pretty <laughs> creepy. Pretty cool. Like, it, it set up, like, a really cool story right off the top that I think the other one didn't. So I already felt things going in a better direction. Yeah, there, there's definitely some serious uh, storytelling that is happening early on here. Narrative is p- playing a much bigger part, aka the the three guiding principles up top. But to your point, Josh, like it may not have necessarily been stated exactly how long it's been, but I remember reading or hearing somewhere that it was in the order of years, not on the order of days or weeks. I guess I just got the feeling when I talk to people again, they're like, oh, Hi, Link. How are you doing? Do you know where Zelda is? What? Zelda's missing? It's not like, oh, you've been gone for a decade, Link. It's nice to see you. Everything in Hyrule is kind of a weird, timey-wimey, like, just sort of goofy like that. Like, I mean, how often would you say you see our president or, you know, our rulers in our uh, society? So I guess it's kind of like one of those things. It's like, are we, you know, simulating a much larger space with the limitations of video games? You know, I don't know. To be fair, they did build that whole lookout town, so they have to have, like, constructed that from something. And I'll just point out that had all those pieces just started floating up in the air, like, ten hours ago, people would be freaking out about it a lot more than they were in the game. They're like, oh, this is normal now. They've been (laughs) living with this for a minute. That's a really good point, and I think that's, like, one of the main things about this game is, like... You know, we were in a post-post-apocalypse last time in Breath of the Wild, and now, like, people are taking it a little differently. Like, it's not like, you know, a, a place where people are have adjusted to the decay and are rebuilding. It is a place where people are interested. Some of them are concerned, but a lot of them are just like, oh, interesting, what's going on here with this upheaval? <laughs> I did prefer this, too. Again, it wasn't so post-apocalyptic-y. It was kind of like, hey, this is what we're doing now. People felt more settled. It felt more... Not as depressing. It felt like the people were more active in this game. Like, they're actively rebuilding. They're creating new towns. There's all those piles of building materials everywhere. Uh, there's They're also taking a larger role in the kingdom, too. Like, there's the monster hunting squads of the villagers that you can go on a whole quest line with. But they're not just being like, we're hiding in our towns. They're saying, like, we are doing something about this. You're absolutely right. Like, I agree, and we'll talk about the side quests later, but this is the same Hyrule, but different. Like, revisiting all your favorite places to see what's up. Like, yes, there's still monsters. This is a game after all. Um, But, you know, there's this gloom that's come. There's uh, disasters all over the world that are occurring after a seemingly short period of calm. And... I think it's interesting that the world is just, as you said, a lot more bustling. There's a lot more opportunities for side quests because there's a lot more sort of, for lack of a better word, infrastructure going on. One of the, you're talking about, you know, Hyrule being the same but different. That's not a situation you get to in a lot of games when you have a game with a map of this size and scale. And again, we're just talking about the surface world here. It's weird to explore something you've already explored and see how it's changed, like going to Hatano or going up uh, Lanairu Springs or something like that. And you're thinking like, I know what's here, but what's different this time around? 
the craziest thing was how iconic this map became. I mean, this was like one of the most praised games ever. People have spent thousands upon thousands of hours in this game. You gotta be careful how you change things or people get upset. Yet I think they did enough respect to what was there before and still found a way to change it to meet that nice medium in the middle. I, I absolutely agree with you, Clint, but I think one thing I want us to, to focus on first off is this game doesn't start you off back down there as it did in uh, Breath <laughs> of the Wild on the Great Plateau. It starts you off in the Great Sky Island. And I think we should talk a little bit about this tutorial first, just to ground us in sort of the chronology of this game, and also to talk about how it's introducing a lot of the new things that are happening in Tears of the Kingdom versus Breath of the Wild. The biggest thing it's introducing is, of course, the islands in the sky. You're not on the just the Great Plateau where you just need a paraglider to jump down. You're on this gigantic floating island in the sky. It's the same sort of tutorial space where they teach you what you can do with the game both in terms of here's an ability and how go have some fun with it but also some light puzzle solving it introduces you to those damn korok pairs that are like my friends over there on the other side of that cliff <laughs> i need um, to find my like, friends <laughs> <laughs> get off your ass and go you little lazy bastard i like <laughs> except for that first one i think i tossed everyone down a cliff or into a river or something like that yeah, or launched them into space or something like that um, <laughs> oh i should have done that there's still time so here's the thing like you know, after you wake up having a replaced hand courtesy of Raru, the uh, goat man lizard person that uh, <laughs> became your patron grandfather or something like that, um, you realize that you don't have your Sheikah Slate anymore. You have none of your old powers. They took bombs away. And at this point, I was like, oh, they took bombs away. Oh, wait, they took bombs away. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, you know, it's one of those things where initially you're confused and then you're like intrigued and then you're delighted when you realize that bombs have just become an ambient thing in the environment. Um, yeah. I, I really <laughs> like the way this game handles the fact that they are completely changing the verbs that you have as a player. You know, you don't have those Sheikah Slate powers, but you have a whole new group. And I think we should go into those. And I think the first and most important of those is Ultra Hand. What? That's the one? What? Oh, <laughs> you, you, you want to go Fuse first? I Okay, I will say one of the things I could not stand the most about Breath of the Wild is that you take three swings at something and your iron sword would just fall apart. I, don't, I didn't <laughs> want to be searching for swords every three seconds. It's not a gameplay loop I'm happy with. And uh, I think they made the, the weapons a little, a little more durable in this game i'm pretty sure they did it felt like it anyway but then they added this fuse thing where basically you could meld any two things in the world together and make new weapons out of it so you didn't have to go looking for weapons you're like there's a rock there's a stick we have a club oh there's yeah like <laughs> you could put like anything together even to like some hilariously stupid effect um which made for some fun combinations absolutely this was a really cool game design thing they did because your enemies dropped body parts, but they dropped a greater variety. They're not just dropping a bokoblin horn, but they're, it'll be like a red bokoblin horn, the weak one, or it'll be the silver, the strongest one. And each of these things will add a different amount of attack power to the sticks or the swords or the spears you attach things to uh, to create a new weapon. But this had a really nice loop to it where if you beat a powerful enemy you get their body parts which you can use to create powerful weapons and unlike the first game i never really felt like i would i could ever run out of weapons in this game like mm. 
there's never a scenario where I'm like, oh man, I got to go back to a stick now. It's like, oh, well, here's a stick and a, I've got 50 badass horns that I'm just going to throw on to all the sticks I find. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And in the, in the last game or in Breath of the Wild, it felt like the durability mechanic was a a thing that was putting scarcity into the game. In this one, I was excited when a weapon broke because it means I could pick something new up and fasten something new onto the top of it to make an even better weapon. Like, to your point, it was a treadmill that I was controlling a lot more than, like, the scarcity in the environment was, which I think melds nicely with the rest of the themes in the game about how everything is a lot more established and built upon in general. Yeah, it wasn't punitive anymore. It actually felt like an additive experience instead of something like bogged it down the other thing too is it wasn't just you have different types of damage now too i don't know if it did in the last game but like one will have like um stabbing damage or slashing damage or bludgeoning damage like you can do different things like you could even build tools that way like oh i need an axe cool we'll get a sharp a sharp rock and a stick or i need to bust up that rock over there you get a boulder and another stick i guess sticks were the most important thing in this game (laughs) clint Clint apparently really liked playing with sticks uh as we all did i think most of us grew up playing in the woods with sticks uh you know midwestern boys it's how we roll the interesting thing with the fuse, too, was not just that you'd add it onto your swords and whatnot, you'd also add it onto your arrows. You could attach a bomb onto it, and now you have a bomb arrow. You attach a fra- flame fruit. Now it's a fire arrow. Arrow. Bleh. But you can also, they had all these other tiny little items you could add on there, too. Here's something that confuses enemies when it lands near them. Here's something that zaps them and stuns them or creates darkness around them so that you can go in for a sneak attack. Um, I feel like I played with the quote-unquote chemistry system in this game a lot more because I had it at my beck and call. I always had fire. I always had shock arrows. Anything I wanted to, I always had it. I have something to say about that chemistry set analogy because I know you were a big proponent of calling uh, the Breath of the Wild physics system a chemistry set. And I would say, and I've you know I've seen this mentioned a few other places around that this is more of a construction set than a chemistry set in this game. Um, hmm. You know, it's more about building, attaching, and to that end, we've talked about one of the powers, fuse, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more. But the other power that you are introduced to right away is Ultra Hand, which allows you to grab not just metal object as Magnesis had in Breath of the Wild, but any object in the environment uh, that can be moved and attach it to anything else. This power was absolutely crazy. I feel like it's, to me, the signature power of the game. Like, you're able to... At first, you do a simple thing like you attach two trunks to build a bridge. Then you're building a minecart, a pulley system. You find out about the fans. Uh, You find out later about the rockets. I tell you, I first saw the rocket, and I honestly laughed out loud. Because I saw what the game was promising and what they were going to deliver on later just by finding a rocket I could attach to something. I'm like, this is going to be hilarious. Oh, yeah. Rocket shield for the win. (laughs) When I can't find a way up, I attach a rocket to myself and launch myself into space. Goodbye. I think the great thing about this game is even early on where they're, you know, prompting you to, like, I don't know, put this... um, put this hook on this line and, and sail down gracefully to another area. Um, there's lots of people like me that said, oh, I'm a dumbass and I have a dumbass solution for this problem. So I'm going to build the biggest, longest log bridge in the world instead of the intended solution <laughs> and, uh, and yep. just do that. And uh, there are more videos about this type of problem solving posted online and they are endlessly entertaining to watch. 
What always surprised me was there were probably a dozen or so shrines I'd go through where I wasn't getting what they were trying to say or like what their intended solution was going to be. So, and yeah, you're like, well, that's cool. I'm just going to go around it doing this way. And it's janky as hell. I can tell because <laughs> of the way it fits in the room here. It's obviously shouldn't exist. And yet it does. Yeah, I found it wasn't in a shrine for me, but the uh, the lightning temple. I remember creating some like crazy Rube Gold. Is that right? Rube Gold. Yeah, Rube, Rube Mouse Gold. Machine, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was insane. It was some platform that kept put me out like 15 feet past where I was supposed to be able to stand. And I had to put a mirror in a specific spot <laughs> and this and that. And I know that's not how I was supposed to solve the puzzle, but I'm like, I'm tired of figuring this out. So I'm going to build something stupid instead. And the game lets you do that, which I think is a brave choice. I think there's two things about this that kind of make it work. Like the goal per the developers in an interview I read was to keep the complexity um, fairly low, you know, and and have it all introduced up front. So you could layer or rather introduce everything that it was using up front and then introduce complexities to it later by adding additional components, et cetera, et cetera. So to that end, they limited it to the 45 degree rotations that I know we are all, you know, used to now. They're not allowing you to do, you know, by degrees. It's all on that um, eight different points in the the circle, so to speak. Um, predetermined attach points was a big thing that they kind of belabored <laughs> apparently during the uh, development process, which was very important. And building taking place in real time rather than a menu so that you couldn't have necessarily something where you're spending like hours in a menu figuring out the exact perfect configuration and you know making sure that you were limiting your need to what was actually necessary in the moment. There's another really interesting thing about this 3D construction system they have is that you can only rotate an object on two degrees of freedom. You you can uh, use those two degrees of freedom to create the third one, but um, from the standpoint of like trying to program that into the UI and trying to develop controls for this, only having to worry about two ways to rotate things is infinitely easier than trying to wor worry about three ways to rotate things. So it simplified the process for, for the player because the controls were simplified themselves. I want to point out like a lesser thought of intuitive thing about this is all of the items resemble real life items. Like they have a water spouting item and it looks like a fire hydrant. There's never been fire hydrants in Legend of Zelda, as far as I'm aware, but it makes intuitive sense to you and me that that water spouting item looks like a fire hydrant. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, having like common visual language for our society transposed onto the different crafting materials in this game just short circuits something that could be potentially confusing. Or the things like the wheels, where the wheels have a top to them that has an arrow telling you which way they spin. Because yep. otherwise, you're going to make a confused cart. <laughs> I got to be honest, I still did that a lot. I'd have like three <laughs> wheels going one way and the other wheel going the other way, and it'd like spin off into nowhere. I'm like, oh my god, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I mean, the gliders that look like birds was kind of like the first instinct of, or instance of this to my mind. But yeah, no, I Those hear were you. cool. There, there's definitely a... Uh, a situation where try as you might sometimes things can still be a little confusing i think it was generally in a hilarious way when things went wrong yeah yeah, yeah. it was never again <clears throat> there's there's plenty of resources around you can build it again and it's also worth mentioning that once you build something once you can like save it as a blueprint and just auto rebuild it which i thought was a cool touch too mm -hmm. 
you can discover that is one of the powers you get later the auto build that lets you save um the things you build as favorites to do an easy rebuild later it also lets you discover schema stones throughout hyrule which i thought was a great touch of explaining like here's a thing you can build mm-hmm. that a player like myself who isn't like like the stabilizer stone. I don't think I used that once until I got the schema stones and I said, oh, oh, okay. I see that now. Yeah, I really like the schema stones as like inspiration for future creations that they sort of planted in the game. I'm sure this is one of those things that was added sort of later on. And for what it's worth, schema stones are found in the depths, which for most players are going to be a place they visit a little later in general. Um, yeah. So to that well, end, unless you're me, <laughs> we'll talk, I'm, sure we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk about our paths to the world. But yes, um, we still have a couple powers, and I think we should hit them in a little quicker. Um, one, which is basically a development tool, Ascend, um, allows you to look at uh, an area above you. Since this is a game that has layers or tiers, one might say, um, hmm. and uh, you know, basically no clip through a surface into the the next level surface above it. I forgot about this so many times because it didn't seem like something you were supposed to have. I got stuck at like, uh, what was it? Uh, the Rito thing forever. I'm like, mm. how do I get up through this thing? I, I tried so many rocket shields and this and that. And I'm like, Oh wait, I it can just, just go ascend. through it. Yeah. That's so silly. As far as ascend goes, <laughs> the ultra hand was the power that impressed me most from like, this must have been hell to program all these <laughs> physics in. Oh, yeah. But Ascend impressed me the most from the game design standpoint, because in at one level, uh, Breath of the Wild was a game about trying to figure out how to go up. And here's Tears of the Kingdom in the first half hour to an hour of the game being like, here's how you go up. You press the button and you go up. And I just kind of like blew my mind. I'm like, what? Where are they going with this? That's the whole challenge of the first game, and they're just saying you can just go up here now. I didn't like that a lot of the first game, too, was all about, like, fighting your stamina wheel. Mm -hmm. And I'd get, like, three-fourths of the way up something, and it would start raining, and then I'd just fall down. I'm like, okay. Like, there's a cool aspect to, like, getting to the top of the mountain, but I just, like, at some point, you just want to go up there and build some things or see some stuff, and this, like, really opened the vocabulary to give you the ability to do stuff either by building something to do it or just shooting straight through the ceiling in the original breath of the wild uh climbing was i think the biggest verb in the game and once you were in a tall place you could paraglide down in this game like you could still climb and you did it some places but it was not the required solution very often if at all no, you could even get in, like, uh, the map towers. You shoot yourself up into space, basically, and float down. You could get anywhere with those. Places you shouldn't get to. But they would <laughs> let you do it if, if you really wanted to. Yeah, it, it's true. I mean, like I, like I said, I think this was basically a developer tool that they decided was so useful and integral to the way that they wanted folks to navigate the world that they made it into a mechanic, which um, makes total sense to me. Um, but to your point, it's not something you normally see in a game that's focused on traversal. So it Mm -hmm. makes them think about different ways in which you can manipulate traversal, which brings us to our next and final power, uh, Recall, which is the time manipulation power of this game. This became my, like, if I can't figure this out, I'm just going to move something and move it back, and that becomes my floating platform to get wherever (laughs) I need to go. Yep. 
the Mega Man method. Uh, if you don't have a floating platform, you call one out of thin air and make it move yourself. Um, yep. Hmm. That's funny. I feel like I didn't use recall that much. I'd use it on some puzzles where it was required, but I feel like, like Stasis in the last game, it was kind of the forgotten power for me. Hmm. If correct, in the last game, it was Cryosis for me that was the forgotten power, but... Oh, well, um, I forgot about that one, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think, I, I think Recall, once I realized the simple ways I could use it to make my life easier, like, for instance, um, when I built something that I needed to launch, um, I would just recall it up into the air with me already on it and, and launch it from there rather than trying to like push it off an edge and quickly board it and then inevitably fall to my death. Um, hmm. So yeah, there, there's lots of subtle uses for recall, but there's also lots of really clever ones. Like um, for instance, there are often places where you see pieces of the sky islands, which we mentioned because of the upheaval are falling from the sky, from the ruins that have risen into the air due to the gloom escape or that has escaped from uh, Ganon or the demon king in this game um and if you see one of those on the ground you can use recall on it and it will fly into the sky with you on top of it if you're there so very easy mm. way to get to a sky island you have not been to yeah. before personal elevator is what i used it for the most mm-hmm. for sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so <clears throat> one lesser kind of aspect of the recall thing um it was the only power that i think was shown off in the original trailer for the game which i think did feed into the perception a little bit of like the expansion pack because out of all the powers we have this is definitely the maybe the least innovative especially the way they showed it in the trailer which was like there's a boulder coming at you now instead of making it stop with stasis you're making it go backwards and you're like oh that's cool i guess but it's certainly not like groundbreaking in the way that breath of the wild was so i kind of feel that that trailer tempered expectations of these powers and then they're say whoosh here's all these others can we talk a little bit about this game and the expectations on it and what came out about it before versus what we actually got because i think this is Mm -hmm. important to the context of of this game you know this as i said up top was six years in development obviously huge amount of stress placed on this Uh, group to develop something that was similarly groundbreaking. And to your point, it was notoriously tight-lipped about what actually was going to be in this game, to the point where one of the three levels of this game was not even announced or known about before its launch. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. there is... You're talking about depths? Yeah. we, yeah. we, We have the Sky Islands, Hyrule, and the depths. And the depths was basically kept under lock and key until the game launched, um, which... I think is is pretty fascinating that this game managed to keep so many people unaware of exactly what they were in for with the sequel. So I'll be honest, I didn't follow the the um, news cycle at all in this game, so I did not care. I, 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 you were probably trying to save it. I didn't care because I didn't like the last game. Um, but when I watched some of the reviews and they were showing some of the stuff from the depths, I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting stuff. And that's actually, I think, what got me interested in, in trying it again. So that was, kudos to them for keeping that under wraps, I can't believe they managed to pull that off. Yeah, so there was actually a pre-release leak for this game too. There were ple- there were people playing it on emulators about a week before it came out due to a, an image of the disc being released. But surprisingly, people stayed really chill on spoiling stuff. Um, it's because they were busy playing. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Turns out this was a good game. <laughs> game takes three weeks to beat. No one's going to spoil it for three weeks That's at a, least. 
It's a great <laughs> way to keep spoilers down. Just keep them busy. That's true. And, it, you know, I guess it worked. But to that to that end, like, I, you know, I stayed away from the pre-release cycle, as you intuited, Clint, because I wanted to go in blind. And, you know, um, that paid off for me. Like, I think this team seems to be able to do their best work when they're asked to, like, make a change to a formula. This, to me seemed like an opportunity for them to do a Majora's Mask again. And I love Majora's Mask, so that was mm-hmm. definitely uh, intriguing to me. I think it's worthwhile talking about the depth in a little more detail, because for me at least, this was the most impressive of the three areas. Not just because nobody spoiled it on the internet, which is not really heard of so very often, uh, but you have your Hyrule, the, the land we know and love from the first game. Um, You have the sky world, the sky islands that you can launch yourself up to and fly off of. But then you have like this completely different level below the depths where things are dark. There's gloom everywhere and the gloom causes the the gloom or damage from monsters down there causes a semi-permanent loss of health. Uh, You can't just eat your way out of damage in the depths or at least not as easily as you could in the first game yeah i'd say this is pretty important nintendo's done this a couple times um you want to have an accessible game but you also want to have a game that's a challenge for veteran gamers so uh mario odyssey did this with other side of the moon and the other other side of the moon which is like the insane challenge i feel like the depths is something that you don't even have to really engage with um from a story perspective at least not too much but for people that want a pretty crazy challenge, you can get into some weird stuff down there. Yeah, it's it's spooky. It's extremely expansive. I know we're going to talk about the dungeons and the bosses, but there's iterations on those down there that are interesting to me as well. Um, it's funny to me how heavily they promoted the Sky Islands aspects, and they are such a tiny portion of this game compared to the massive, expansive depths, which you know is yes. probably as... I think it's about as big as the whole Hyrule area. And interestingly is um, completely inverse compared to the normal Hyrule level. If you'll notice this, this was something that was pointed out to me, is that the highest mountains on the Hyrule side of things are the lowest depths in the depths. Ooh, so that's I did not know that. I did know that that anytime there's a shrine above, there would be a shrine below to or a light route. So mm-hmm. if you found one, you could almost like kind of map out where you should be heading. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think there's lots of interesting parallels between Hyrule and the depths that are, you know, to, to your point, there's those mechanical things like you mentioned there, but also like what's occurring above and what is also happening uh, in the depths. If there's something interesting happening on the surface, there's more than likely something interesting happening directly beneath it in the depths. Mm-hmm. They call that out in the game towards the end of it. I will say, um, I really like the game Subnautica. We've talked about that here. And that um, section of the game really gave me Subnautica vibes. Like when you go down too deep and you know you don't belong there and it's dark and you can only hear the possible dangers around you and you feel completely out of your depth. That's the feeling that I got down there too. And even towards the end, like even when I was completely competent, I had a full arsenal. I was fully, not fully upgraded, but very upgraded. You still don't ever feel like at home down there. Not until you start lighting the whole thing up. But to me, uh, this was a call out to other underground areas, a.k.a. Uh, Schieffer River from Elden Ring was the first thing that came to mind as soon as I descended into the depths. Um, so you, I don't know, you, you probably remember that one, Josh. Um, but just the continuous going down and being like, oh, man, when is this going to end? And then finally reaching down there and seeing the, you know, 
I think the entrance to the depths in Breath of the Wild is so evocative when they play the horn, that signature horn sound. As as, yeah, it's, yeah, it's unforgettable. I think what Clint was talking about, the uncomfortableness in the depths, was so expertly done, and the two main ingredients for that are the darkness, where you can't see where you're going, and the gloom. So what that means is your major verb of getting around, like paragliding. You can paraglide all you want in the depths, but you can't see where you're going, and where you land might be dangerous. And you realize that pretty soon, so you realize, like, I've got to traverse the depths a different way. You learn about the bright bloom seeds you can use to throw or shoot an arrow to and kind of light a path to you to get to the next light route, which uh, illuminates a broad swath of land around it. Uh, But it's so different than exploring up on top of Hyrule, where you're like, I'm just going to go paraglide where I want to, because I can see where I'm landing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and the and the worst bosses in the game are down there with you. Like, first of all, the most dangerous enemies are already down there. But as you defeat bosses, they also go down there with you. Mm-hmm. So you're like wandering around, and the, oh, like oh shit, there's a there's a bot. One of the main bosses is just sneaking around down here in the dark, and you have no way to heal yourself. <laughs> it's a pretty scary place. You know, to to my mind, this is one of those things where like they're they're playing with something here about like. The, un- the depths being like Hades. It's like the after the underworld, the place where the dead go. Um, yeah. Which I think is really interesting because you'll also see like phantom soldiers down there. And, you know, uh, you'll see... Are those oddly, the statues? Yeah. Uh, the okay. statues that are holding weapons, um, which I think is interesting. Um, There's one other thing I wanted to mention about some of the references they're playing with, with the depths. And um, I don't know if you guys have seen the Miyazaki film, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Winds. Um, but that is very much a thing that is called out in the depths in this game with sort of the haze and the like spores that are floating around in all of the, you know, various locations that you end up in down there. Um, I don't know that that's like a film that if you watch it, you'll see references to it in a lot of video games. Um, Dark Souls for sure. All of the Souls games really, but especially the depths in this game have a lot of call outs to it. This was the darkest I've ever seen a Zelda game go to, just like in uh, in context and content too. Like this was normally it's bright and silly and whatever, and this wasn't like horrible. But you're right, this had more in common with Dark Souls than I would have ever expected out of a Zelda game. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth calling out that a lot of Zelda games have pretty dark themes. Like in, in let's just start at Ocarina of Time. Like the world's literally destroyed, and Link is wandering around the apocalypse as soon as he becomes an adult. Um, you know okay uh yeah i guess it's just the way it's presented <laughs> wind waker flood apocalypse majora's mask pre-apocalypse breath of the wild post-apocalypse twilight princess middle of an apocalypse <laughs> it's just you know <laughs> they're all pretty dark <laughs> i think the uh the lesson is that ganon is no good ever <laughs> yeah although he's better at being not good in this one than he has been in several of the previous iterations i will say he was a more interesting yeah. He was a more interesting villain here than I've seen recently. Well, let's talk about this story because I think it's kind of fascinating. Um, to your point, Ganon, or rather the Demon King, as he's referred to for most of this game, is a really interesting presence. And you get to see him in this game in a few different, uh, I guess, eras. You get to see him in um, flashbacks to the ancient past of Hyrule. You get to see him in the uh, current era, which is to say the the timeline that he is making a comeback as a result of Lincoln and Zelda's foray into the underbelly of Hyrule Castle. 
and then you get to see him when you're facing him finally at the end of this game, which uh, we'll talk about later. <laughs> One really cool aspect of this game that I think was a really brave move that another game that I'm trying to convince you to play does as well is they let you experience the story in any order that you want, which I think is crazy to, to have a story that you feel so confident in. And you're like, I could show this to you in any order and this would still be cool. I'm pretty sure like that takes a lot. And I think it was just, it was just the flashbacks that you could do in any order, right? Yeah. Well, I guess you can do the dungeons too, but whatever. Well, this is a really interesting thing for me about this game because like Breath of the Wild, you could do the four main dungeons in any order. But the crazy thing about this game for me was that the Explore These Four Dungeons was not the only what I'll call mainline quest out there. At the same time you learn about the four dungeons you have to go see, the, the regional phenomenon you have to investigate, you learn about these dragon tier hieroglyphics where you unlock memories, flashbacks of uh, Zelda in the past and the, um, you know, King Raru and things like that. Uh, at the same time you do that, you get this explore the depths thing where you find out about this massive underworld that literally is the size of the main map. Um, you learn about all these things, and it doesn't tell you what to do. It says, go off and do these. These are these are not side quests you're being assigned to. Here's like three games worth of main quest. It's, that's what it feels like at the beginning. The game kind of splits its narrative between past and present, right? Like at the very beginning of the game, Zelda disappears. You do not know where to. And uh, later on, spoilers are full on as we said up top, um, but you find out that she was transported to the distant past because she has, you know, uh, time powers. And as a result of that, you get, as you said, Josh, these dragon tears that will show you glimpses of the past and moments of Zelda's life existing amongst the ancient royalty of Hyrule. I thought one of the interesting things about this game was um, Zelda games are probably fairly famous for Zelda not having a lot of agency. Uh, but an interesting thing they did with this is the sages are kind of a canonical part of Zelda lore and everything. There's always the sages who forge the Master Sword or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and this game made Zelda into one of those sages from the time long ago, which I thought was a one of the interesting steps they did with her character. Yeah, she's not a helpless damsel in distress. She was like actively part of the story and fighting to save Hyrule alongside, or not alongside, but you know what I mean. Yeah, it parallel, but in a different timeline, I guess is a, right. a way to put it. It's it's interesting. I still think there's room for them to do more with Zelda here, because she's still completely removed from, you know, the actual action of this game. What would have been an interesting thing to see this game do at some point is let you play the Zelda side of this story. Um, you know? All right, Last of Us 2, <laughs> relax. Yeah. You can't have everything. One day. One what, day. did you want to play a 280-hour game here? I'm not, like... I'm not saying it has to be this game, but let us see that project. Um, Could be right. DLC. It It is canonically not. Um, they have already announced <laughs> they, they have already announced that there will be no DLC for um, Tears of the Kingdom. Yeah. Didn't you get enough content for <laughs> God's sake? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I have a quote here. Um, series producer A.G. Ayanama um, said to NPR, uh, We were able to implement all the elements that we wanted to achieve in this world and story, and there will be not be any DLC. Please continue to enjoy the vast world of Hyrule. Uh, thank <laughs> That's you. That's the nicest we, <laughs> we have ever heard some way to say fuck off. <laughs> ever. <laughs> Haven't you had enough? <laughs> 
but yeah, so it's interesting because, you know, as we, as you were saying, we have this sort of past and present dichotomy going on with the whole story. And I think it's really cool how we get to see glimpses of Zelda's story. Again, wish I would see more, but it informs so much of what is happening in the current adventure that Link is having in current Hyrule. The cool thing is they've managed to keep an air of mystery about the whole thing. Like, I actually felt almost never in a, in a Nintendo game am I like, ooh, I wonder what happens next. It's pretty formulaic. Like, I had an idea, but, like, they, they gave you little uh, breadcrumbs here and there, and it was enough to keep the air of mystery, even though, again, this could have been revealed to me in any order. I could have found the one that explained what she did right at right at the top, but it still would have left enough of an opening that would have kept me interested, I'm pretty sure. Like, did you guys feel like you found, like, I guess we already gave a spoiler warning, but the fact that she was a dragon, did you find that out early? No, that was one of those things that I think was revealed pretty late to me. Um, and Same. I, Likewise. Yeah, I I didn't put all of that together uh, for a long time. And I, I actually think I did this. I think I've heard of a lot of people finding like the Master Sword before even getting that reveal and being confused and things like that. Um, I think I got it all in the order it was generally intended. Like I did all of the various temples and catastrophes and then i did i went around and hunted dragon tears and then i did the master sword then i did the depths i don't know how did you guys find all of that interplay luckily i found the master sword early which (laughs) meant that i could do the other thing i'm not supposed to do early which was be hanging around the depths a little bit too much (laughs) i think i spent 30 hours just trying to get the ocarina of time outfit out of the depths (laughs) (laughs) worth it it was awesome. <laughs> uh, you were playing the hero of time in uh, yes. in this game that's heavily focused on time. That's kind of fitting. Um, hmm. But maybe we should talk a little bit about some of each of the disparate areas in this game. You know, I don't think we have to like do a deep dive on every single one of them because we'll be here all night. But um, let's talk about at least each of them a little bit. Yeah. I kind of see it as there are population centers. There's Lookout Landing, where you start off, you learn about some of the basic mechanics, what's happened, you explore Hyrule Castle, you see Zelda uh, disappear into the distance, or someone that looks like Zelda, at least, and you learn about the four regional phenomenon you're sent to investigate, taking you to the villages, the towns, where the divine beasts used to be. Yeah, I was going to say this like broadly mirrors Breath of the Wild, but to me, it's like a complete step up in terms of like, let's use, uh, say, the Rito Village as an example, because that's where I went first after Hyrule Castle Town. Um, you know, it is covered in a snowstorm. They have had, uh, let us just say, climate change occur. Um, again, this is a theme that I think is resonant throughout the text, but is especially easy to point out right here. Um, they have a blizzard, things are screwed up in the Rito village, and it is because they have uh, a temple high in the sky above them that you need to pair with the ascending Sage of Wind, go deal with. The game had a sort of formula with the four dungeons you would have to do. It wouldn't just let you go right to the dungeon, you had to earn your way towards it. I also did the Rito village first. I was super impressed with the kind of the sky bridge you would have to navigate towards that because there weren't really any enemies along that for the first time it was all kind of platforming challenge but just the kind of the mood and the music and the vibe of you ascending this super long deserted platforms uh to get up to the temple really 
set this game up like this is going to be something different than the normal Zelda. There's not like Bokoblins to bash on the way up here. Yeah, I feel like this was almost like part of the dungeon. So one of the things that Breath of the Wild just really fell on its face on was the dungeons. They were boring, in my opinion. They, they were so samey, they were boring, and then the the bosses at the end just were like, blah, nothing. The uh, For me, again, everybody has a different opinion. I think we all kind of agreed that like the repeated tile sets and sameness of the uh, Divine Beasts plus the Shrines in yeah. Breath of the Wild was an unequivocal weakness of the game, you know? Yeah, this completely fixed that, I think. So, yes, there are some similarities between the what I'll call the end dungeon part, but all that run up to it, that's part of the dungeon too. Like in this one you're you're running your way through through the sky bridge and all that stuff. That's a very unique. That's a whole thing. Like the dungeons felt more interesting here than ever. And and the bosses were back too. Which yeah. I Yeah. For what it's worth, I even like the little brash uh uh, sage guy Tula, who's the son of the leader from the last game that you teamed up with. Uh, he's great. He's enthusiastic, uh, and best you know, sage. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely the best sage, and he's the only one whose power I consistently used. But <laughs> yes, um, also that. To, yeah, to if that, anybody's uh, listening who hasn't played the game yet, do the Rito Village first. Absolutely. Yes, agree. it unlocks a very helpful skill for moving around, which is, I feel, you were talking about how, um, you know, climbing was your biggest verb. Mm -hmm. Moving around still is, it just gives you more agency in different ways to do it, and I think his power is one of those really important ones. I could even argue that they designed that to be the most important power, because players who played the first game remember that the Rito village power was the best in that game, yep. so that's the natural <laughs> place to go in this game, too. It's also the easiest temple, I think, Maybe they signpost it, maybe they don't, but I think people just generally know, go do Rito first. They recommend you do Rito first. Like an NPC tells you to check it out first. That's yeah. also where they have the uh, whole newspaper storyline quest start too. So it's, I think, supposed to be the first dungeon. I would I would agree with that. And I think while we're on the topic, you know, once you do get up to the, the top of climbing all of those you know, sky bridge boats, you get to the actual wind temple, which is a floating arc in the sky. Um, and if that just doesn't set this apart from the sameness of the divine beast in Breath of the Wild, I don't know what does. Like, that <laughs> was such a statement to me saying like, yes, all of these temples will be unique. All the bosses will be unique. They will relate to their areas. They will relate to the world. This is not just something we plop down on the landscape. Yeah. Oh, and the boss in that temple was cool as shit. Yeah, Colgara. That was an awesome. Col yes. Colgara, to my mind, is probably the, if not the best, one of the best bosses in this game. Because um, you, you had to sort of do the skydive through the center of Colgara to... So awesome. Yeah, it was it was intense <laughs> and thrilling uh, as like a statement on what this game was iterating on with what Breath of the Wild brought. I think it's about as good of an example as I could imagine. I honestly don't remember not... I only remember not liking one boss. I don't even know if I had a favorite because they were all pretty, in my mind, pretty... pretty I think I know the one you're going to say, but please say it. W Water Temple? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Fuck that octopus. I hate that guy. That was oh. annoying. I'm sure there was a correct way to do it. I wasn't quite getting it. I mean, I, I get it. Hit it with water, but he was so annoying. No, I figured it out after I beat him. 
um, the first time, because I beat him again in the depths, what you do is you grab one of those hydrant things and you hold it over your head, and then you have water everywhere, which makes the boss oh fight a God. lot easier. Yeah, hydrant was the way to go with that one. But let's let's move on to Zora, since I want to keep us moving. But um, I think that this was actually the weakest area for me um, in, in, in general. Like, I, I didn't love the run-up to the... Uh, the temple. I didn't like the temple itself very much. Like, I don't understand why the water temple was in the sky, uh, raining, you know, shitty muck upon the Zora. Um, but to that end, uh, Sidon is there. He seems to still be cool, although he is un- cool. undoubtedly the most mm. useless of the sages in terms of the power he grants you. <laughs> but he's cool to have around. That's all that matters. He is. He's, he's just cool there, to but... have around. <laughs> he's there with a quick smile yeah i like the i did like the water temple too i think my least favorite temple was the lightning temple but just the temple itself i loved the gerudo town run up to it like again this is another thing where they play with your expectations because you've played the first game you've done a couple of these i think um Gerudo was the third one I did. Um, so I've gone, I've, I'm like, okay, things are different at each of these towns. And you go to Gerudo town and it's empty. It's under attack. Everyone's hiding. And you got to figure this out. It's like, oh, this is affected in a way I did not expect. Yeah, you're fully prepared to go in and wear a dress and, and do whatever yeah. you got to do. Whatever. <laughs> Surprise, <laughs> whatever it's a saying. zombie apocalypse this time. <laughs> he just shows up in his dress. He's like, hey guys, I'm here. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I I agree with you, Josh. It plays with your expectations, and I'm really I, I really enjoyed that run up sequence. I enjoyed the temple too, personally. But um, I think eh, mirrors. Sure, <laughs> sure. I mean, I just like the the design of it. Really, like it's a temple or a, a pyramid that rises up out of the desert. It was you know and had this gigantic queen uh, zombie bug as its boss. It was evocative. I'll leave it at that. Um, I did like the boss fight for that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, all in all, I think it was it was up there for me. I mean, none of these are bad. Let's just be clear here. Um, I think I think they all were entertaining in their own way. Um, the Goron one is hilarious. It's uh, Gorons being hypnotized by marbled rock meat. Um, everyone's <laughs> on drugs. Everyone's on drugs. Yeah, yeah they were <laughs> doped out. I will say, okay, yeah, you were saying none of these are bad. Every single one of them is better than anything that was in Breath of the Wild. So everything, I appreciated everything, even some things that didn't quite land for me, like the water one. I'm like, whatever, this was still effort. The storytelling in general was better. It had more of like a context for, you know, what it meant to the society in general. Like what is, what is the marbled rock meat doing to the Goron? Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious. They're all on drugs, like you said. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Yeah, the Gerudo thing, you know, it's a zombie apocalypse. The Rito thing, they're they're suffering an endless winter. It's all it's all really good stuff. Um, even the Zora, like you know, water is their lifeblood, and water is being polluted as a result of this temple. Um, it's it's just all much more cohesive to the rest of the game than like divine beasts popping up out of the ground. You know, I think I like the divine beasts more than either of you two did. Kind of like from a narrative or thematic standpoint but i do agree that these dungeons had a lot more personality than the uh divine beast did like um i'm not trying to throw hate on the divine beast like breath of the wild is one of my favorite games of all time still and i think it was you know completely revolutionary but i just appreciate what they've done here to iterate on that idea you know fair enough fair enough 
Well, one of the things you do get after going through and beating each of these dungeons is that uh, you have a character companion. Uh, We talked about Tulu, we talked about Sedan, um, and the other ones whose names I don't remember, but they follow you, you along through the dungeon. They give you a power. You use that power to, like, you know, bust through rocks in the fire temple or what have you. After you beat the temple, then you gain them as a sage friend, and they're your little ghost buddy then that runs around and does combat with you, gives you access to their power. Uh, so you have a, by the end of the game, you have a whole little team following you around. I thought that was cool too, because again, this feels like kind of a, it can feel like an empty world, but yeah, you almost have like a little posse that's rolling with you and it, and it grows as time goes on and it feels like you're all in it together. I would say this is specifically one of those things that helps the game feel less empty. Um, I, mean, I think there's a lot of things that do this to my mind. Like there's just a lot more activity going on in the overworld, a lot more NPCs, a lot more settlements, a lot more random side quests out in the middle of nowhere. And yes, of course, if you feel like doing it, you can roll around with a posse of five ghosts next to you. Um, I personally turned them all off except for uh, the the bird guy, Tulin, because uh, I would find myself accidentally activating sage after sage after sage and sometimes it just got annoying (laughs) (laughs) now i think it worked for me because they would sometimes whack an enemy for you they weren't the most effective fighters but sometimes they draw some enemy attacks towards them um i think it did make combat especially against large mobs a lot more manageable yeah, and you were talking about the fact bombs weren't a thing anymore. Well, they kind of are. You get the Goron, and you have bombs <laughs> on <laughs> on demand. He is a walking bomb. Um, to your point about them being eff- effective or not effective fighters, I also found that um, Tulin, or Tulin was the most effective fighter, too. So it just made sense to have him around in general. He would just yeah. crit guys with his arrows nonstop. He was the most effective fighter, but he was also the worst one to accidentally activate his oh, power. Yeah. Because then it's like, oh, all these body parts you've been hunting, mm-hmm. whoosh, off the cliff. Yeah. Sorry. I've had I've had several tragic tales of very valuable pieces and parts being blown off the edge of a sky island and me diving off the edge of it after them. <laughs> <laughs> recall, recall. <laughs> yeah. That should have been an AOE that you could have just like blasted everything back. Which I'm just trying to think of like the crazy amount, like how much processing power did it take to just have that ability to be like, you can rewind anything in the game 20 seconds if you want. That's just crazy. That's one of those things that like, I know when this game came out that like a lot of programmer types were just looking at it being like, how the fuck did you do this? (laughs) (laughs) Can confirm. (laughs) It's their hardware. It's their game. They're pretty much pulling out every bit of processing power you could possibly get out of that switch i think it, we we've seen the limits that this that this uh, game system can do yeah I, I don't i don't doubt it that they are wringing every single thing they can out of it but i think it's also a point of note you know in a time where we're talking about this game we just recently saw um, announcements of unprecedented amount of layoffs and we've seen that throughout 2023 nintendo has a retention rate of 98.7 percent across their company in the game development space does the one point three just die at work? Like he probably, <laughs> um, or re- or retires. Um, recall, recall. <laughs> but to that to that end, like you know, it does help to have institutional knowledge and longevity, and um, we're seeing the result of that in this game. I mean, yeah. even a cr- 
not with with Nintendo consoles, but um, you always see like late gen games being so much better than the initial releases because people know how to work around an architecture better. They know how to wring that last bit of juice out of it. Especially first party. Yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. To that end, once you do end up completing these uh, four major catastrophes, the story does continue on in interesting ways. Uh, there is one final sage you do get the powers of, the spirit sage Minoru, uh, which gives you the power of a mech. But what if a mech sucked? Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind Worst of. It was sage. It was le- well. I okay. I actually did appreciate the area because I know some people. This game can be a lot of things to a lot of people. Some people probably saw the build function where like, I'm going to Minecraft the hell out of Zelda and come up. I've seen some of the obscene, like li- literally obscene and hilarious and also just like crazy things that people built. And I'm just not going to be that guy. I'm not going to spend three hours building something that's going to, you know, drive me 30 seconds down the road. Um, but this boss or this area gave you a chance to play with all those tool sets, even if you didn't mess around with it freeform in the world. Yeah, and I sound more down on this than I actually am. Like, I agree with you, Clint. It was fun doing the run-up to it and the boss fights that they have you do as uh, with the Sage Minoru's power, which is to say, having Link board a construct, a.k.a. a <laughs> mech. Link drives a mech in this game. You heard it here mm-hmm. first. Yep. Um, uh, it's fun. It's fun for a little bit, and then you take that mech out into the rest of the world, and it just, to my mind, doesn't really mesh with the rest of the mechanics in the game, so I found myself never really using it. I agree. Same. The, the mech just slows you down when you're out there in the real world. Loved the run-up to get the Spear of Sage, going through the uh, Dragonstone Island or whatever it is, with the storms going on everywhere, um, and the boss fights with the wrestling matches. That seemed <laughs> fun, too, but like... What I really wanted this mech to have was like a grappling hook or something <laughs> that increased my mobility instead of just made me move at half speed. Yeah. I will say, if they'd have made them super cool, the, the thing I wouldn't wanted, have wanted to have happened would be that this was like the new way to do everything and then this just becomes a mech game. If they made it that much cooler, that's how everything would have been done afterwards. This was almost like a, hey, do this thing. Hey, forget about this. We're moving on to something else now. This is a callback to the old Zelda lock and key puzzle system. You know, like this is literally like the temple where you get the thing and you use the thing and then you discard it and move on. For better or for worse, that's how it ended up playing out for me, I guess. Yeah, I would have been annoyed had the final battle been a mech battle against Ganon. I mean, that just would not have been very Zelda. So I'm okay with them pushing it aside. You guys mentioned Subnautica earlier. I just really wanted that like grappling hook you got in the shrimp or whatever it was called back then. Where it's like, the okay, shrimp. prawn can, suit. Yeah, the prawn the, suit. The prawn. Right. How far off? The shrimp. Prawn. Shrimp. <laughs> It's but the most yeah. powerful weapon in the game, and it's or vehicle in the game, and it's called the shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would have like it would have been fun to have an addition to my movement arsenal with that guy instead of just being like, oh, we're gonna make this suck so that you don't use it. Yeah, I, I don't think that was the in- intention for sure, but it was more of a situation where it just it didn't fit the style of play that I was enjoying with the rest of the game um which is to say like it didn't allow you to do much more in terms of exploration and on the topic of exploration this game gave you a lot more to chew on outside of the main quest than i think breath of the wild did you know they brought back the shrines obviously as as we've talked about in this uh game but there's also a wealth of side quests 
you guys have any thoughts on the, the shrines or, or specifically a lot of the side quests that the game uh, put in front of you? I actually got a question. Okay, so in the first game, I feel like everybody felt like they had to go full endurance right off the bat <laughs> because, again, your, your main verb was climbing and you had to give yourself the agency to do that. How did you guys balance that out in this game? Like, did you kind of equalize it? Did you go straight endurance again or what? Two staminas to one heart. Okay, I heard that online, and I kind of followed that one too. Opposite, opposite for me. I I got up to the point where I had the two wheels of stamina uh, total, and then I never upgraded stamina again. Um, oh, I just I by the end of it, I think I had like fourteen ish hearts. Because um, you know, this in this game, same way, you do a shrine, you get one fourth of a upgrade of either stamina or hearts, and you needed two stamina wheels to get the master sword. And once I got the master sword, I was like, well, I don't need this for climbing. I barely need it for slow-mo arrow shooting. I can just do hearts now. One thing that I found with this game was like, I've played Breath of the Wild. I'm good at that game as, you know, much as a normal gamer can be. Um, but like... <laughs> Josh, normal gamer. <laughs> Average guy. Average one, one guy. thing I don't think I'm I've ever heard you called normal gamer. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know... I know how the systems work. I know how combat works coming into this game. And the game's difficulty increased faster than I thought it would, partially maybe because they hid the great fairy fountains a little more in this game. Or I feel they did. Um, so I had, like, shitty armor, more or less. But I feel like I needed to increase my hearts in a way that I didn't in the first game. Yeah, this was hard for me, too. Like I said, I spent an absurd amount of time picking up those... Um, Ocarina of Time armor pieces so I'd be damned if I was going to let those go but to upgrade those I'd have star fragments mm. which is the hardest thing to freaking find in the whole game so I kind of <laughs> felt your pain the upgrade for the armor was slow Clint, normal gamer <laughs> Womp I, mean, <laughs> I, I agree with you that the combat in this game in is similar to Breath of the Wild was not easy right like they were expecting you you can get one shot in this game pretty quickly, um, especially early on. Especially with low armor, yeah. Yeah, low armor and early on. You know, this is, and I love this about this game, one of those games where you can wander into a place where you are not welcome and you are not ready for. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that... Yes, this does not scale with you. Exactly. This was this is a hard area. Do not go here. Like I was talking about earlier with the uh, being able to shoot anywhere, I accidentally shot right into like a dragon lair one time. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get out of here. <laughs> oh, shit. We should talk about the mini bosses. Yeah, there's mini bosses in this game. Um, so obviously we have our old friends, um, the Lynels. They are back. They are around. The Lynels, the Hinox, the Taluses, the three major mini bosses of game number one. I think I only saw one Lionel in like 115 hours, guys. They do seem a and little less prevalent. Yeah, they but. are. They're still there. Uh, there's that Colosseum, though. This took me a while to do, uh, where you have to fight five Lionels in the depths in a row, and they get oh, I increasing. Know this one. Yeah. In lo- uh, it's how you get Majora's Mask. Um, but I will tell you that. Uh, I wasn't appreciating how sensitive the motion controls were until I tried to do this battle in a car ride <laughs> and my arrows were not landing in the face of the Lionel like they should have been. Oh, I turned that stuff off. <laughs> I turned that off immediately. I don't do uh, um, gyro aiming. I can't do it. I think it's great when you're stable. 
I always turn it off too. I just can't count on being stable. There's always a child coming up or something like that. <laughs> um, child coming at you. Josh is living that one child life where <laughs> somebody else can be watching. We can get attacked from any angle at any time. We know better. Yeah. Lionel's children, equally dangerous. Um, yes. But to your point, aside from all of the uh, old Breath of the Wild enemies, this game introduces Gleox, which are yeah. Hydra slash dragon style enemies, which are visual spectacles, extreme difficulty uh, challenges, and honestly, just hella fun. Mm-hmm. Great boss battle. Like, uh, this was my favorite mini boss fight. It was always uh, an intense battle. Like, my pulse would be racing after I'd win or lose, which happened often enough. Uh, there were still the, some of the cold, like the cold Gleox. I wasn't sure how to get to that last stage. Even at the end of the game, I had to, like, jury rig myself up in the air to shoot them down because there's those damn icicles i couldn't find a way around them yeah i i did kill one of those at the end of the game i honestly don't remember exactly how it was done i think it was a rocket i think i rocket shielded myself up there that seems like a likely thing or bomb blast something like that um at any rate the key with those enemies to me was always the homing arrows you gotta have those Mm -hmm. uh yes I was going to ask earlier what our favorite fuse thing was. And yeah, the eyeballs that you attach to the, the arrows are, are yeah, if you, sweet. If you got a Lionel bow and you can do a three times homing arrow, those Gleox will they'll pay eventually. Mm. Um, but yeah, it is a really cool thing that this game chose to not only have those new types of enemies out in the overworld, but made the rewards for killing them so much more explicit. You get great fusing materials from them. You get really good weapons or opportunities to fuse weapons from them. Um, it's a, usually a large resource expenditure to kill them, but it usually pays off, which I like. It's interesting thing, too, that you get body parts from them instead of weapons. Like, if you got weapons, it's you say, oh, I can't use this. I am full up right now. But you get the body parts, which you can stock up for later. Makes it much more useful to just go out of your way anytime you see that. Yeah, that is interesting. You know, one thing that I don't think we delved into is like at the end of the power curve in Breath of the Wild, you kill a Lionel. What are you doing? You're discarding your other Lionel bow that is a little more damaged. Um, Mm -hmm. In this one, you're getting Lionel parts that you can save and fuse. um, And into whatever you want, not just the sword or whatever. You can do whatever you want with it. Yeah, yeah. It's much more versatile. It's much more to the point that we love about crafting systems, Clint. It allows you to make the decision about how you deploy the resources you're Mm. gathering. I was just going to call that out. Yes, for sure. This is what Brian and I always like about crafting. Crafting done right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this game definitely has um, a variety of uses for most items. Like, to your point, you can put it on a weapon or on a shield. You can just chuck it. You can... um, you know, throw it into the environment and then interact with it in another way. Um, there are lots of options. I think my favorite, uh, you know, throw a pine cone on the ground, catch it on fire and create an updraft so you can launch yourself into the air. Like, yeah, there's lots of interesting little things like that um, that make gathering random shit on the ground and plants useful in this game. They had some really good powers, call it, from the random items, the pine cones, the mushrooms. Uh, they would unlock new strategies for you or new abilities for you so it was always worthwhile gathering them and i think the hilarious like comparison between this game and like an ocarina of time is like how do you get an ice arrow in 
Tears of the Kingdom. Well, you find an ice berry and you stick it on top of an arrow and suddenly it's an ice arrow. In Ocarina of Time, you had to, like, decipher a riddle and stand an pedestal on Lake Hylia at the exact right time of day and shoot at the sun and then, you know, you might get <laughs> an ice arrow. Or maybe it's a fire arrow. I can't remember exactly. That was the fire arrow, yeah, shooting <laughs> in the sun. It, but yes, it, it's it's very hard to get. And I think Breath of the Wild is hard to get things, too. Like, oh, I need lightning arrows. I need to fight a Lionel and see if I can get... Whatever. Like, yeah. here they're like, guys, we have a sandbox. We know you want to play with these things. Here's this at your disposal. We won't make it so hard for you to find the tools to do some stuff because you can do things your way. This game did feel a lot more playful. Or yes. maybe constructive would be the way that Brian describes it from the pillars. Yeah, you don't be hoarding your resources. You want to be getting creative with your resources. I don't want like 10 Legos. I want a thousand Legos so I can play with them <laughs> at my own best. You know? A thousand Legos, but you're picking out only the ones you want to build with. Um, right. Yeah. Inventive is the word I would say, Josh. Well, Gleoks were definitely the standout new enemy, but there were also other ones. There were the frocks, the giant rock frogs down in the depths. Um, and there were also in the depths the Yiga bases, which I really enjoyed assaulting and going after because the Yiga in this game weren't just random like enemies that attacked you. They were in the overworld, um, but in the depths especially, they had like the coolest vehicles. So you could kind of get an idea of how to put a battleship together, say, um, but also attack their bases. And I like the set pieces in this the Yiga fights for this. Yeah, I did too. I kind of wish that, like, it, it felt like every time I was assaulting a Yiga base, it was in complete darkness. And I wish I had, like, done the job to, like, scout around and light up the area before I went into a Yiga base because they are, like, cool and fun. And once you do see what they look like, kind of incredibly nifty and visual spectacle looking. But um, it is also kind of cool to, as you said, just sort of go into the unknown and take out some weirdo on a hovercraft and steal his schematics. <laughs> and you're like, now I know how to build hovercrafts. This is great. Yeah. It's funny how like on the overworld, they're doing so much work to rebuild and figure out how to work things. And then down underground, the Yiga clan's like, uh, yes, we are harvesting ancient technology to build tanks. If we can ever get these up to the surface, y'all are in trouble. <laughs> I think yeah. this game did a really good job between the depths and the sky islands where you'd find like half abandoned ships of showing you kind of the limits of the ultra hand system. It reminded me in a lot of ways of the uh, Factorio single player thing where it's like, oh, I could do this if I put these two machines together. I do like the way that this game has reasons for like lots of stray parts existing throughout the world. On Hyrule, they're trying to rebuild. So there's a bunch of wood and posts and stones and bricks oh, yeah. and things Wheels like that. Yeah. Things, yeah. yeah, resource depots where you, you can use to dis, um, you know, construct things. In the depths, there are mining stations where they have a bunch of equipment for old Zonai uh, mining stations. And Zonai, this is the first time we said that word in this podcast, I think. Um, let's <laughs> talk. Wild, it's like the main <laughs> word that they use. Yeah, so the Zonai, it's worth mentioning, are... Um, an ancient Hylian civilization that uh, when you talked about Zelda going back in time, she ends up in the time of Zonai folk. And they are basically these sort of goat people. Sky who are, God. Yes. They are ancient aliens. They're ancient. They're, they're, they're Hyrule's ancient aliens. And they, uh, yeah, they made all kinds of high tech stuff and Link and Zelda get to rediscover them. Anyway, in the sky islands, those are basically Zonai ruins that have risen to the sky. So you got, 
Zonai up top, Zonai down low, and Hyrule in the middle. Just chillin'. Once you get all four of the initial sages from the catastrophe, you go to Hyrule Castle, you kill or you confront Phantom Ganon, who uh, up until that point was an illusion of Zelda. Do you all remember this? They mm-hmm. were yes. he was sort of masquerading as, as Princess Zelda in her old school garb. Um, that ended up not being a thing. And then as a result of that, uh, they said, hey, you need to figure out what exactly happened to Zelda. So that prompts you to continue that Dragon Tears quest line, yes? Then you get the in, the information that brings you to the realization that Zelda was teleported to the past, the Master Sword went with her, now she's in the sky as a dragon, you retrieve the Master Sword, and then you can confront Ganon in the castle. Yeah, that's <laughs> why this went all wonky for me, because I'd already gotten the, the Master Sword, so... Right. So I got the Master Sword before going to Hyrule Castle the first time to fight Phantom Ganon. Um, so it was almost more like Endgame for me. It felt like Endgame. I actually yeah, put too. off going to Hyrule Castle because I thought it was Endgame. Mm-hmm. And then the game surprised me with more storyline after. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Like, they, they don't, like, have it end there at the castle. They have it end with, like, all right, so now we need to figure out how to confront the Demon King. And the Demon King, as you might expect, is beneath Hyrule Castle, not at Hyrule Castle. (laughs) So guys, I think we almost forgot to talk about Endgame here. Yeah, so once you... Uh, have found all of the other dragon tears. You're learning about Zelda's fate being trapped back in time. Um, you realize that uh, sh- she had been transported to the past, was with Raru, the first king of Hyrule, and Sonia, Hyrule's first queen. Eventually, um, working with the other le- leaders of the Zora, Ritu, and Gorons, and Gerudos as sages, um, they sacrifice themselves to seal away Ganondorf. And as a result of that, Zelda um, draconified herself uh, in order to restore the Master Sword to its original strength. And that is how you, as Link, in present time, come into the possession of the Master Sword. However, that is not the end of our story. Once you get that Master Sword, you still have to go and confront the Demon King himself in the ruins beneath Hyrule Castle. I thought this was a pretty cool kind of twist they did because when you start the game, Hyrule Castle, you know, it rises up into the sky and of course you think, okay, that's where the end is. But just like they didn't tell you about the depths uh, pre-release, the real Ganon you have to fight is down below Hyrule Castle. This plays out in a pretty cool way too. I mean, this is a big, for one, you have to go through a gauntlet of the hardest enemies of the game to get down to where he's at. And then a three-stage boss battle, which sometimes get annoying, but these were all pretty darn cool. And speaking of which, we barely talked about this the entire game, uh, but there are dragons. There are dragons. Just hanging out. (laughs) There's just dragons flying around. And uh, I guess we'll talk about this one-on-one. Obviously, you you go after... uh, 
I'm gonna call him Zombie Ganon. What, what is he called? <laughs> Demon King. The Demon King. Slim Jim. Yeah. Yeah. You go after the, the guy as, as you've seen him this whole time, which is kind of cool, but then he turns into the Ganon we all remember. Let's talk about the, the boss battle, since there are a few stages to it, and it's pretty involved. So, at first, when you descend into the depths, you get Sidon, Tulin, Yonobu, Riju, and Minoru all battling with you. You basically have, like, a brawl, as you said, Clint, with all of the hardest enemies in the game, and it is epic. Um, it's really fun. And then... Uh, Ganon comes out, or Ganondorf rather comes out, the Demon King, and you fight him. And then once he realizes he's about to get uh, fucked up, he swallows his secret stone and becomes a dragon. Um, and at this point, there's two dragons in play. There's Zelda, the Light Dragon, and Ganondorf, or Ganon at this point, the Demon King Dragon. And you have a dragon fight where you as Link are riding on the back of a fucking dragon. <laughs> yeah, this could have been really weird, but, you know, and it was weird. However, but it, was, it awesome. was really freaking cool. <laughs> yeah, this was not the ending I expected, that's for sure. No, I think this is like one of the coolest ending sequences I have seen in uh, any game, but a Zelda game for sure. It is sufficiently epic and really like, you know, visually stunning because it's all taking place above the landscape that you have spent probably hundreds of hours at this point roaming around um and it's just it's really well done like it's you know they don't make it too hard for lack of a better word like it's not a difficult fight but it's it's, cinematic it's very cinematic yes you're supposed to be like thinking like holy shit holy shit holy shit like for five minutes straight like i can't believe they're letting me do this and yeah they don't want you to die and ruin it they they want you to complete like you've done all the hard stuff in the run-up to this this is just the payoff and you know i'll kind of disagree on the dragon fight i thought it looked really badass but i didn't feel as badass doing that i think it was too easy in my opinion like um i remember there was one point where like you it's the last hits you got to get in on ganon and everything just stops actually like you're flying around and there's no like sense of speed or anything you're paragliding to the right point to hit the weak points or whatever but ganon stops as a dragon and launches fireballs that are like off by a mile (laughs) while you're supposed to go through and hit the weak points or what you're supposed to do um it kind of ruined the tension and the drama for me i agree with the fact that like this is not a hard fight and i to be frank i don't think it's supposed to be but i think that is on purpose for sure like this is a battle that is not supposed to be like a difficulty check that happened before that was the uh big fight in the the depths this is like the cinematic you know closing fight where you're seeing more in terms of storytelling than you are in terms of actual mechanical payoff there is like a symbolism going on with this fight you know especially underscored after the actual final blow is struck when raru and sonia pop back up and like help Link deal the final blow and retransform Zelda into a princess instead of a dragon. But um, to my mind, like, this isn't supposed to be like a mechanically interesting fight. Just supposed to be a visual spectacle and something deeply symbolic to the point of the story. It wasn't that it wasn't difficult. It wasn't exciting at the end of it. I lost the sense of speed and the sense that this is like a dragon I'm fighting. I would say you are in the minority here. Yeah, I can't. And I, I disagree. Will, okay. <laughs> I hard disagree. So, like this is such a cool, like, symbolic gesture to like the point of this whole story. Like it really ties it all together in terms of like what they're trying to say with 
this world and the past and the present coming together to like work together and destroy this contaminating force for the, their country. 100%. And when you get games like this, and I've seen this plenty in like other games, like Un- Uncharted. We talk about Uncharted enough. We're going to play that at some point, I think. <laughs> but there, there are sequences in it that look cool that are, that are like chase sequences. If you died a hundred times during the chase sequence, by the end you'd be like, instead of thinking, "Oh, that was cool," you'd be like, no, "Can this sucked, fucking be over?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to. You don't want a momentum ruiner. Like you said, we've already had our difficulty check with the run up. We, we, I mean, we had to fight Lynels to get down to this thing, and then we had a two-step boss battle that were pretty difficult right before this. Yeah, I, this is just like the payoff. It's it's not meant to be a boss fight that's like satisfying from a mechanical mastery perspective. It is supposed to be a visual spectacle that, excuse me, a visual spectacle that confers the like, symbolic meaning of what you're doing to beat this boss. And to that to that end, like I guess as you're saying, it's not like a hard thing that you're doing. It is it is a mechanical representation of the symbolism the game's trying to get across with the characters that are in play in that battle, I guess. They could have made it a cutscene, but they that wouldn't made have made it Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't have been nearly as as weighty. No, no, I'm saying they couldn't have made it a cutscene. You can't make your last boss a cutscene. I wish they played the cinema a different direction, a quicker direction, something that made me feel more like... Like, do you remember the Rito Temple, where you're, like, skydiving through the guy's weak points and whatnot? So a little more active. Yeah, something a little more like that. Hmm. I'm trying to remember exactly how this played out on the, the boss battle for Ganon, but as, as far as I remember, like, basically you're running up to try and get to his, like, head jewel and, like, stab it. Yes? Yeah. I just feel like they didn't incorporate the gliding and diving, the skydiving especially, which was maybe the big verb of this game was the skydiving, or one of the bigger ones. I felt like they could have incorporated the mechanics in a more exciting way. Well, here's the thing, and I think this is, like, one of the big points where this game differs in Breath of the Wild, is that it, like, indulges in cinema a lot more. Like, if we're thinking about even way back to the tutorial island, the first time you jump off the the big sky island and head on to, uh, down to Hyrule, the swell plays. You hear the da-da-da-da-da, you know, it, like, gets all epic, and, um... You see that happen as Link crashes into a pool and like all of a sudden you're off on your adventure. Same thing happens here. And I think in a really great way, it mirrors that exact same scene where instead of missing Zelda's hand and her disappearing into the ether, you catch her, you fall into a pool. You know, it's the end of the game. You, it, it perfectly encapsulates the idea that like, yes, we've gone through this struggle. We've come out the other end. We realize what has to be done to actually vanquish and rebuild this world that is fucked up from the sins of our forebears. It is deeply symbolic, and it's also deeply, I guess, meaningful after you spend a hundred hours or whatever you have in this game world. Oh, I loved that last scene where you're skydiving after Zelda. That was perfect as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's like the perfect pairing of what happened before, right? In the beginning sequence of the game, you dive after her, you miss her and then she falls away. This time you catch her, and you're able to turn the whole thing around. Yeah. I, I thought the I thought the ending of, of uh, this game was chef's kiss. Yeah, wow. yeah. I, I honestly think it's the best ending. I, I haven't finished Baldur's Gate yet. I'm close. But um, this is definitely one. the best best ending of the, of the year so far for me. Um, you know, I, I read what you're saying, Josh, in terms of, like, yes, it's not a mechanically interesting thing, but I don't think it's meant to be. So I guess I'm just as, you know treating it in that regard instead. 
But you were talking about some some other themes, Brian. Yeah. That you wanted to bring up about so, the world. So as we, you know, as, as I was talking about themes, I think like I mentioned sins of our our forefathers. Like this is clearly a situation where like the Hyrule royalty of the past was saying like, yes, we will just seal away this this calamity or this this Ganon, this demon king, and surely that won't come back to bite us. Um, sweep it under the rug here and don't look under there <laughs> yeah it, it's interesting to me that like this game chooses to like confront an idea that we are confronting very actively in that we've made a lot of choices over the course of the year <clears throat> climate change um, that are now coming home to roost in big ways in our, our modern society and I think you know this game has that rot through, or you know shot throughout it basically we have all of these calamities happening all over the world um it takes hard work to resolve them. I don't know. I don't know. Did you guys clock sort of a climate change analogy here? Or am I talking on my ass? I didn't as much, but I definitely got the, hey, we'll save this problem for later until you absolutely can't do it anymore. And it pretty much ends everything. <laughs> no, I'd agree with that. There's, um, there are echoes of that going on throughout. Um, although I, I do kind of think that it's like the past generations tried to do what they could in this game, and they weren't able to. Like, yeah, like um, Raru wasn't like sleeping on it. Like he, they tried many things over and over and over until he find. I mean, he sacrificed himself. Yeah. Ultimately, like he, he also led just, Ganon into the court too, which he did. Zelda yeah. said, "Hey, this guy's murders babies. Maybe <laughs> don't let him in. Maybe don't." You know, I think maybe on a more hopeful front, there is also a theme in modern Hyrule of. Uh, helping and hands and collective action. You know, this is a game that's all about building. You know, I talked up front about like invention is one of the core mechanics of this game. But there's also like a big like, hey, this is the Hyrule Reconstruction crew. We are going around and rebuilding everything that got screwed up during the Calamity Ganon phase. You know, even five years on and after the upheaval, people seem less phased by all of that. And I think this is a game that's like deeply caught up in like it was developed during the COVID, you know, times. Yes. So I feel yeah. like this is a game that's reflecting that type of mindset where like we've come through some quote unquote interesting times. And now here we are trying to put the pieces back together. And every game is about destruction and, and, and breaking things or, or destroying things. Very few games are about rebuilding and making something better out of something like again you play call of duty how do you how do we make things better shoot something how do we make it really better shoot it more like this is like hey why don't you help help out your neighbor and maybe help rebuild a village or do something nice for this guy over here and they're going to open their little stand again and be able to like provide for their family it's like little things like that all over the place it's about building things to make things better to Clint's point, uh, one of my favorite little side quests in the game was Luralin Village. Yes. Yes. The little fishing village that's now being under attack by pirates. And you go, and of course, you fight the pirates, you fight them off. Uh, how many other games have you played where you beat the pirates and then there, there's a, you know, fade to black, you fade back in, they're like, we rebuilt the village. In this game, you fade to black and you fit, come back and they say, all right, get to work. We need 20 tree trunks and we need 50 wheat fields or whatever else. They like um, make the reconstruction part a vital part of it. And they need you for it. And you even get to pick like, okay, what should we build first? What should we do here? And you kind of get to play a part in all of that. You get to play a hand instead of it. You're right. Instead of just fading out and be like, everything's better now because you killed some people. 
No, that's just... You've cleared the threat, now help them rebuild. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. And I think it's interesting to see that it's a process, not just a one-time, you killed the pirates and now everything's good. Laurelin Village is a good example. Terrytown's a good example. You know, we obviously rebuilt Terrytown as part of Breath of the Wild, but now you get to see how it's continued, how it's expanding, what problems it has now as a result of that. Hateno Village, one of the places where we had in the previous game as well, is now going through a mayoral election. Very interesting mm -hmm. themes of democracy in this one, where Link gets to go around uh, tipping the scales in terms of his uh, favorite electoral candidate, perhaps. Back um, the cheese, man. That's what I say. <laughs> I, I did not dip into politics. My Link is above that. Uh, evidently, he's into monarchies because he's really into the princess. So. Well, you also get to prop up a shitty construction company with the sign guy. Um, you know, running around Hyrule trying to construct the absolute worst signs ever. <laughs> <laughs> I thought these were a little interesting construction challenges because the signs were very wonky and each of them had kind of different requirements for how you got, you're like, you've got to create a stand for this somehow. We don't care how, we don't care <laughs> where you grab the things from, just make it work. I built some of the stupidest shit in the game for this quest. Same. I like looked at it at the end. I even took some screenshots like this. This was my solution to this. And it looks like something a toddler would make, you know, at school. And like, is this art? No, that's fucked up. Put that away. Put that on your fridge. More like it. It is kind of art, though. Um, you're just taping things together, popsicle sticks and logs, just making sure things stay up. And I think mm. that's kind of like a thing about this game is like they're not making shit perfect. They're just making it better. Um, sure. And, you know, that's kind of inspiring. One thing I did low-key like from a lot of these side quests, like the uh, newspaper articles and things like that, where you investigate a rumor at every stable, was the rewards in this game seemed a lot more focused towards specialized pieces of armor rather than um, breakable weapons. It felt a lot more permanent. Yeah, and I feel like there's an armor set for just about everything you can yeah, imagine. Yeah, callbacks. Yeah, so many callbacks. So much, uh, I guess, in a less charitable light, fan service. But honestly, I love it. Honestly, it's it. fan service for the people who are playing like 200 hours of this game, which are the fans. They are the fans. They deserve the service. Give the people what they want. I'm not mad about that. Again, I, got, I spent entirely too long playing as Ocarina of Time Link. You know what? Was it helpful? No. Did it make my life harder? Yes. Did I look cool doing it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of the day, that's what counts. Yeah. One of the things in this game that was not present in Batwa that I kind of missed was in uh, Breath of the Wild. They had the photo scrapbook scavenger hunt where they gave you 12 photos of who knows what that you had to find and go back to where the photo was taken. I thought it was, in Breath of the Wild, a great example of how they used the landscape to show you, here's notable landmarks, and you can figure out where you should be from there. Uh, kind of missed that in this one. Two things to that. One, I think given the fact that everyone has been through Hyrule, this Hyrule specifically, for many, many hours, that would have been too easy. Um, hmm. and two, I think they kind of replaced this with the tears. Like I really liked what they did with the tears in this game, the dragon tears. I think it works on, on a few levels. One, like being able to connect the past to the present is good. The fact that Zelda is a dragon, it is the dragon's tears that works. 
the idea that it works into the title of the game, Tears of the Kingdom. Tears being the dragon's tears. Tears being the three tears that the game has. Tears, in another spelling, tears, meaning the sky or the literal rocks tearing up out of the earth and creating holes in the ground of Hyrule. Um, I just like that as a theme or, a, I don't know, a motif throughout the game. So I don't have a problem with them disincluding the picture or the picture aspect. You can get the camera back, but you you take pictures of things for... But it wasn't really an important part of the game, and I'm fine with... I didn't want to have to play Pokemon Snap with every uh, item in the fucking world here, so I'm okay with <laughs> the non-inclusion as well. Oh, a couple of great things they had with that was that you could upgrade your Pura pad, which is not a Sheikah slate. Yes. Let's be clear here. Oh, that's right, uh, You could course. upgrade that. Uh, great power you could have was setting that recall point. Or setting multiple uh, recall yeah. points, eventually. Super good, yeah. Like, when you're exploring a new area, you're like, I want to jump off this cliff, but then I can't get back up here so easily. I'll just set a teleportation point. Perfect. Perfect. Perfect? Yes, perfect. <laughs> I use this all the time in those um, uh, sky labyrinths. So there's, you know, how the, do you remember the labyrinths in the first one, the cube labyrinths? Um, I didn't do a single one this game. Uh, me neither. I did. I did, I did all of them. Um, so they're really cool in this game in that they exist on three levels. You enter them in the Hyrule level, you do something in the sky level, and then you get to dive all the way into the depths and finish them off down there. Um, oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, it is. I would recommend going back and doing them. They're fun. But uh, the other interesting thing they have is the uh, Sheikah sensor again, which there are certain times like during the um, the Spirit Sage quest where they're asking you to find like a treasure chest or something like that. And you can use the Sheikah sensor. They tell you to use the Sheikah sensor to figure out where the treasure chests are that you need to find the gear you need to access this uh, Thunder Island. Which is a nice thing. I think, like, the game, you go farther in the game, and the game gives you more tools to complete the story quicker. There's a combination of you getting more tools at your disposal, you know, through various quests and things of that nature, but also you're learning more. You're learning about what to construct, what to attach to what, what Zonai uh, constructs to use to completely break the traversal curve of the game like it used to be like here's how you get up this mountain you get enough stamina and you climb up it and now it's like well i could just rocket up it or i could build a little hovercraft or i could build a hot air balloon um and there's just a lot more options in this game and some of them you're only going to come across just by playing it um or looking online at all of the videos that many many creative people have made <laughs> it's interesting that this game provides such a platform for creativity yeah i really like that about it and i think like i think we thought that breath of the wild was a place where you saw a lot of really creative solutions to a lot of really you know no one asked this question problems and i think you've seen that uh, amplified about a thousand fold with uh tears of the kingdom it's and the, the exploding dick robots that people are made out of. <laughs> yes, <laughs> ultra hand. Uh, you you've yes, got that. you've got aircraft carriers, orbital lasers, mechs, and of course exploding dick robots. <laughs> yeah, mainly those. If you haven't seen those, go to YouTube. Yeah, you'll, you'll see, see them. We'll, we'll link Wait, one. Wait, we'll aircraft link one. carriers, 
Like, do you put a homing thing on a glider? Yeah, they have like uh, things that deploy little drones that go out and shoot lasers at things. Holy oh, shit. Yeah, we'll link you something. There's all kinds of wild stuff in this game, and I think that's one of the best things about it. It doesn't have wild in the name, but it's wilder than Breath of the Wild by far. <laughs> And with that, let's have some three-word reviews. All right. My three-word review is Ascending, Despite Everything. When I finally rolled credits on Tears of the Kingdom, I knew that I'd just played something truly special. I don't normally follow pre-release hype for games for fear of disappointment, and that approach did not change for Tears of the Kingdom. But I'd be lying if I said I wasn't subconsciously excited for whatever was next, given my love for Breath of the Wild. I went into Tears of the Kingdom blind, and it turned out to be the best possible surprise, an evolution and refinement of almost all of my very short list of shortcomings from the previous game, and a truly epic experience that ended with one of my personal favorite all-time great ending sequences. With Tears of the Kingdom, the Zelda team continued to iterate, taking Zelda in new and interesting direction despite COVID, economic pressure, intense public scrutiny, an increase in difficulty of daily life, labor, and creativity, and, well, despite literally everything, this team managed to upstage even themselves with Tears of the Kingdom and continued to ascend. Tears of the Kingdom plums the depths of the Zelda formula to ascend to unforeseen and seemingly impossible heights, blending a new feeling of invention with the already sublime feelings of exploration and discovery. We've arrived at the time of the year when the short list for Goaty is forming, and right now, Tears of the Kingdom is at the top for me. Very nice, very nice. My three-word review for the game is Against All Odds. Breath of the Wild was an amazing game. It was widely held to be the best game on the Switch, and a fair few thought it was the best-looking game of the generation. When the sequel was announced and eagerly anticipated, I was hoping for more of the same magic that made the first game so memorable. You know, all you gotta do is repeat that game of the year formula, right? Easy. What I was not expecting was that my admittedly lofty expectations for the game would be met, surpassed, and soared over. Tears of the Kingdom brought us back to the same lands of Breath of the Wild, but in a downright astonishing way. The very same Hyrule was available to explore, but new modes of transportation, some of them handcrafted, changed the way you viewed the same landscape in fascinating ways. I expected the change of the Sky Islands because of the trailer, but the new caves that pockmarked the landscape made ground exploration a worthwhile pursuit. I was impressed with those, but the depths floored me. Darkness, gloom, and semi-permanent health loss completely changed how you moved about the space. They changed the rules in such an unexpected and downright delightful way. The epic scope of the original was more than doubled in size, and the mechanical doodads you created on the journey are easily the standout video game power of 2023. As much as I loved Breath of the Wild, I almost can't imagine myself playing it again after Tears of the Kingdom. It's that good. Against all odds, this game delivers. All right, guys, my three-word review is, it finally clicked. 
For anyone that's been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll know that I was just about the only person in North America that was willing to openly admit that they did not like Breath of the Wild, which was honestly hard for me because I've historically loved the Zelda franchise and everyone else seemed to be losing their collective shit over the new game, but I sadly couldn't get into it and I felt a little left out. Um, I'm sure it was a culmination of a lot of things, but the poorly executed weapon degradation system was, I think, what really ruined it for me. Luckily, this time around, this was fixed with sturdier weapons and the excellent fuse mechanic that we talked about that basically made it a non-issue. Rather than feeling punitive, the degradation system felt like an avenue to promote creative play, which I'm sure was the original intent, even if it didn't stick the landing the first time. Other things could be attributed to time and place. Last time, I was very much turned off by the vast emptiness of the world, but that was at a time when we were all forced to be cooped up inside and I was genuinely missing interpersonal interaction, and the loneliness of Breath of the Wild's world just served as a stark reminder to that. Whereas now, I'm a father of two children, and the prospect of a bit of peace and solitude is massively more appealing. <laughs> the world and its vast emptiness did not bother me slightly, and in fact, I welcomed it. Um... I know a lot of people will say, like we talked about, that Tears of the Kingdom is basically just D DLC for Breath of the Wild, but in my opinion, it's more of a refined final draft. The changes made not only fix some of the major quality of life problems, but the addition of the sky and the depth areas really added some texture to the world. Exploring below was often reminiscent of Subnautica for me, especially at the beginning when I lacked the proper tools to be exploring down there. And again, it just added to the whole mystery of the experience, which I loved. I played this game for, I'd say, about 115 hours, and there was still so much left undone uh, when I was rolling uh, up to the run-up of the game. And uh, honestly, it made me a little sad, which was a really good sign that I really enjoyed what was going on in the game. Um, when we played Breath of the Wild, I said that it was an amazing sandbox that failed to capture the magic of the previous Zelda installments. But I'm happy to say that Tears of the Kingdom was able to bring a lot of that back into play for me while building on an amazing foundational system that Breath of the Wild brought forth. And it created something truly special. Finally clicked for me. I'm so glad I jumped back into Hyrule to see what all the fuss was about. Yeah, me too. I, uh, you know, it was a foregone conclusion here, but uh, they seem to have bridged the gap between old and new in a very nice way with this one um here's uh to looking forward to what the zelda team does next and with that we'd like to say thanks for listening and if you enjoyed this podcast then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well if you want to get in touch drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or contact us on twitter at pixelplaypod for us here at pixelated playgrounds i'm brian skersha i'm josh galecki and I'm Clint Jones. Take care, and so long. One of the things that never really clicked for, for me in this game was what was going on in the depths. Like the Zonai Kingdom was mining down there. Uh, 
was kind of what I understood, but like, what were what was up with those statues with the untarnished weapons? I felt like that should have been explained at some point. Those were ghosts, and I uh, Luke had to explain this to me, of all people. I, I played for like 120 hours and didn't know what was going on, but I guess those are the only non-degraded... Uh, okay, so you know how every weapon on the surface was degraded. Basically. Yeah, gloom. Be yeah, nothing down there. Those were the only ones that did not get the gloom. I don't know why. Maybe... Uh, I can't think of the story reason, but it was because they were down in the depths and not up on the surface. And I mean, to my mind, like... I said it a little bit earlier, but I think there's like a very clear like underworld implication with the depths. Like maybe it's not explicitly said anywhere, but the fact that you find the bosses down there after you defeat them and only after you defeat them leads me to believe that there is some sort of like banishment aspect going on with the depths. All the lost souls in the pose are down there. Yeah, right. they talk about that quite a bit. I like that explanation. I like the direction it's going, but I, it would have been cool if it's like, oh, these are souls from long ago that fought in the imprisoning war and they have their weapons with them because I mean who's to say travel. that's not the answer that I mean did we do that entire quest line because there were several quest lines around that that you can spend a shitload of time on maybe they'd explain all that at some point I don't know yeah I I don't know I think I'm I'm okay with them not being explicit on some of these things I think that like they give you enough to work with and enough uh, implications Leaving it, up, leaving it up to the imagination at that point to me is almost more powerful. This is kind of like the difference between the Star Wars prequel approach to things and the Star mm -hmm. Wars original approach to things. Like, sometimes you just don't explain shit, and it makes it better. Actually, uh, Stephen King talks about this, and <laughs> not to bring it back to this again, but we were talking about Alan Wake the other day. I started replaying the original Alan Wake. It actually opens with a Stephen King quote. That says, basically, you uh, horror writers never explain things at the end because it's the mystery of the thing that sticks with you the longest. If you explain it, it's in one ear and out the other. Mm -hmm. That's basically what he's saying. Yeah. But if you leave it a mystery and never fully explain it, it sticks with you. Someone has that explanation. So don't explain it. Or maybe they don't. <laughs> maybe it's your own explanation that, again, sometimes that's the most satisfying. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree with that completely. And like, like. Maybe, I know you you can appreciate a story told inconclusively, Josh. So maybe what you're getting at is like, there was even less there on the bone than you were hoping for, perhaps? I don't think I even saw those statues mentioned in any game text I saw. They but were just kind of to? there. It's like, what are these ghosts? Are they ghosts around all the other ghosts? Could those be ghosts? I thought it or could ghosts. be cool. I mean... Yeah, I can appreciate when something's just there for the hell of it. Like, um, uh, take it back, classic reference in Tolkien uh, with Lord of the Rings, Tom Bombadil was a oh, character Oh, what the fuck who, was that guy? <laughs> Tolkien's talked about, he's like, he's a mystery. He's just going to always remain a mystery. And, um, and I think the fandom has decided he is the most powerful god in the universe. Uh, yes. <laughs> Why not? He was uh, also completely excluded from all the movies about, I think he's, isn't he in Lord of the Rings and in The Hobbit? And he's just completely like, we don't even know how to explain this guy. We're going to just ignore just it ignore entirely. It. And if I remember my Tolkien lore correctly, he <clears throat> was present before The Hobbit. Like he was an idea in Tolkien's mind before he wrote The Hobbit. Um, but he's acknowledged 
in Tolkien's writings, at least. Like, they're like, oh, this guy exists. I feel like those statues didn't even get a little bit of lore in there. And maybe if you play the game for another hundred hours longer than I have, you get to a point where you see something about them. But I wanted a little scrap of, like, something to... A scrap of yeah, something point my is imagination. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree that like having like at least an inkling or an acknowledgement is good. Um, I don't know. Maybe this is just a game that was like so suffuse with like uh, depth and volume of stuff that like one thing not being, not having its you know lore entry quote unquote is bothering me. But eh, maybe that's just me. It's a quibble. I feel like at this point with a game like this, like quibbles are kind of the only thing you can bring to the table. Like, (laughs) you know, like you're not going to like find someone coming out and saying like, oh, this, the the biggest beef I have with this game is how like stupidly it it was reviewed. Like places would give it nines and tens and just say absolutely nothing about what actually made it good or bad. Um, Hmm. which was interesting to me. Like, I really would have liked to have people explore a little bit more about like some of the, the themes and, you know, like I, you know, I talked about like this game is sort of a, a climate change analogy or something like that. And like, I've seen that mentioned like one place online and it wasn't a video game website. It was the LA review of books. Um, (laughs) I'll post the article here. It's like this game as eco fiction and, um, I don't know. I'm just surprised that like that didn't come up in any of the critical reviews of this fucking game that everyone knew was going to get tens. So why not spend your review space talking about something interesting about it instead of just, it's a 10, buy it. I think for a lot of games journalism and games reviews, they're looking at it from a sort of um, entertainment perspective rather than trying to do a deep reading of it. I don't need you to tell me the next Zelda game is going to be fun. I want you to tell me what makes it interesting. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. And maybe that's what we're trying to do here, and that's fine too. But you know, um, for lack of a better word, I, I like I'm underwhelmed by like the critical response to this game and pretty much every major game that's been released this year. Like I don't know, I'm finding it increasingly hard to find good criticism online, <laughs> and maybe this is a <laughs> me problem. But um, would love to get more of that. When a game is so good that you're, like, spoiled on the mechanics of it, then that's I think, says something. That's half of the game, man, is learning crazier ways to do the... Like, again, you could do the puzzle the way they wanted you to do it, or you can come up with some crazy contraption for you to do it the way you want to do it. And then there's the do it the really crazy way so you can make YouTube videos about it. <laughs> I feel like once you reach that level, you've beaten the game. That's half of this game, though. Like, that's not something you do in Baldur's Gate 3, as good as the game is. Which is, I think, what makes this game so special. I don't know. I've come with some crazy shit in that game, too. <laughs> I think the thing about... But you're right, most games not. Yeah, the thing all. about the Tears of the Kingdom physics contraptions is, like, if your solution is good enough to make your friends laugh, it's one thing. If it's good enough to make all of TikTok laugh, then you've truly succeeded. Yes. <laughs>
Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book cub podcast. I'm going to say that again. A book cub? <laughs> is it some kind of book. tiger? <laughs> yes, book cub. He's cute. <laughs> All right, 